Right. Every day, those the ones who enhance the flow. You know them Bruce Lee roars and possess the glow. Yo, you're the last dragon, so you're good to go. You give it back to the world, or why you're crushing your gold? See, you ain't gotta see it. You can just be it. You're the streets hope. Yeah, God told me you're dope, and you're here just to give us some pearls. We appreciate that, so we can share with the world. See, you ain't gotta see it. You can just be it. You're the streets hope. Yeah, God told me you're dope. Dope to dope to dope. Dope, you're dope. Dope to dope to subscribe. Yes, yes, yes. Welcome to Everyday Dope, the podcast about dope people who do dope things. And when do they do these dope things? Well, quite frankly, they do them every day. I'm your host, Mr. Sheffield. Today's guest is going to be Gus Newport. He's a social justice activist. He's a master of economic development. And if a community needs to be rebuilt to flourish, Gus will be on the front lines. How are you doing today, Mr. Newport? I'm doing fine under these pandemic times. So <laughs> under these pandemic been, times. Been locked down since, since March, but, uh, you know, I'm keeping my social distance and wearing my face mask when I go out. I'm trying to do that with the scientists say we should do, not following the, the position of, of our president. Not following. Donald Trump. <laughs> so uh, I know you're a big social activist guy. Have you been a part of this um, election at all? Been talking to yes, Joe, talk, uh, you've been talking to Joe Biden? I haven't been talking to Joe Biden, but actually Danny Glover, the actor, and I were campaigning in uh, North Carolina, South Carolina, and Oklahoma for Bernie Sanders before mm. the pandemic hit us. And then uh, we haven't done any travel. Danny did do some travel to Georgia, where his uh, some of his relatives live. He's got an aunt that's 97 years old. He just went to see them. And he and I just talked, matter of fact, a few minutes ago. But other than that, I've been involved in some local politics, the mayor race in Berkeley and some city council races in Oakland and trying to support the right kind of people versus these, some of these neoliberals and right wingers. So I've been involved somewhat. I haven't been, you know, telling everybody to get out and vote. We got to vote for Biden. Not that he's one of my favorite, but we got to get rid of Trump at all costs. I say we got to vote Biden in November 3rd, November the 4th, we're going to get on his ass and try to get him right. So, yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> yeah. So as as usual, sir, you're on the front lines of trying to make things better. But we have to start you off with the same question we ask everybody else at Everyday Dope. What's your definition of dope? Dope is a substance that makes you incoherent. Oh. Which, which renders you dumb and speechless. Okay. And it's apparent now with all the dope that's become legal, et cetera, whatever else, a great number of the American people are doped. Mm. So, so what are some We're things? We're 43rd in the world in literacy and education. Yes, sir. 72nd in healthcare. Mm. And I think dope is responsible for a lot of that. Mm. 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 No, so you really take dope in a very, very literal sense. Like, you know, dope is really taking people out and making them very speechless and they're not, you know, developing, you know, they're not becoming better people. 
And so that's hindering us as a nation. And that's what you're saying. Is it right? It's impacting on our mental health. You know, it's rendering us as dumb, which is stupid, completely unintentional, lacking in the power or faculty of speech. All those things that are necessary to be able to engage one another mm-hmm. is being rendered uh, useless under these circumstances. All right. So that's a real literal sense of dope. Like, now, sometimes we try to say, you know, in the, in the, in the hip hop community, you know, dope is something that's really, really good. But like you're saying, there is a part of dope that's not so well, you know, and that's the actual substance that makes it incoherent. And there's a lot of that going on. And with you wanting to make the world a better place, and especially in the United States and especially for black people, um, you've done a lot in that area. You know, and you said you just you, you, you had a football scholarship. So that means you're, you're a really good athlete in, in your time. And, you know, athletes have highlight tapes. So give me like your highlight tape for social justice. What are some really amazing things that you've done? Well, I, um, I was in the military from 58 to 60 mm-hmm. and I was in intelligence and I raised a lot of questions that the military didn't appreciate such as why were we testing atomic bombs in the caves when I was stationed in Germany Mm. and various things like that. So they finally discharged me with an honorable discharge, but early. When I came back to my home, Rochester, New York, one of the worst police brutality cases in the history of the country up until that time took place that I was put in charge of that. And we took that case all the way and it was the first police brutality case won in a, in a federal court in the United States. That's amazing, sir. Rufus, Rufus Farewell. So that's how I got started. And then the second time that the police had a big police brutality, they invaded the Black Muslim mob. Mm. And Daisy Bates, who history remember from Little Rock, Arkansas, who helped integrate the schools was in Rochester organizing. And Malcolm X calls her. They knew each other. Said, Daisy, I'm coming to Rochester. Who should I be in touch with? She said, Gus Newport gave my number, and I never knew it, but when Malcolm called me, I was speechless. We talked for two hours, every night for two weeks, and then he flew into Rochester on February. And Rochester, New York, is cold. It's right on Lake Ontario across from Canada. Mm-hmm. And in those days, planes landed on the tarmac and they let the stairs down. So I was inside the airport surrounded by all these white men. I thought they were just businessmen waiting for a plane to New York or something. Mm-hmm. Malcolm comes through the door and we hadn't seen each other. And he said, who is Gus Newport? I said, I am. So he said, young blood, <laughs> you got the best tap telephone in America. This is all the FBI here. <laughs> <laughs> so, so the place broke up. We went on down to the court got the eight Muslims who had been arrested, took them for a court hearing and got them out and took them to feed them because they wouldn't eat any of the prison or jail food because they thought it might have some pork in it. They were just eating more milk. And we took and fed them and went to a, a nonprofit center with, with some black folks who was having a discussion. And naturally, when Malcolm walked in, they invited him to speak. And that was the beginning of my relationship with Malcolm. 
But eventually, because of that relationship, I had to leave Rochester and move to Harlem, where I worked for IBM, but I did a lot of stuff with Malcolm X and Adam Clayton Powell, the congressman. Wow. And uh, I traveled with Malcolm four days before he was assassinated. He asked me to fly from Rochester, from New York LaGuardia Airport to Rochester. He'd been invited to speak at Colgate Divinity School and at Cornhill Methodist Church. They wanted to know what is truly about, not just the nation of Islam. By that time, Malcolm was out of the nation. So we were very close friends right up until his tragedy. Wow. So you are friends. You were friends with Malcolm X. You got on the road and you pulled, you won a police brutality case, pulled some people out of jail, gave them food. Like now that's, Those are definitely highlights. Those are some really dope things, sir. Now, how in the world, because right now you live in Berkeley, California, so how did you get from one side of the country to the next? So after you're doing all these great things with Malcolm, um, how do you get to Berkeley? Well, like I say, I, I had to leave Rochester because I couldn't hold a job because the powers that be, the white supremacists, made sure that I couldn't work. So I went, went to Harlem, and then... Following that, I went to work for the U.S. Department of Labor mm-hmm. in Puerto Rico in the Virgin Islands, doing economic development there. It helped turn Puerto Rico around, and then I married a, a, a Puerto Rican sister, and I was invited out to Berkeley by the cousin of my first wife, who was in uh, the city of Berkeley, hierarchy asked me to come back and look at the need for nonprofit organizations in some youth development work. So I did that. And then I went to work for the city of Berkeley. I was a senior analyst in the recreation parks department. Now that's dope. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. And responsible for public relations. And then I was invited back to the department of labor to work because Jerry Brown, the governor, had passed an initiative that women should get 25% of all non-productive jobs that usually weren't for men, for electricians and things like that. It was my job to go throughout California and Arizona to break down the old boy's attitude to get women into those jobs. And then while I was still living in Berkeley, some people invited me to run for mayor. And I said no, but I got talked into it, and I won the first time I won. And (laughs) because I had been inside the city government, I was able to reorganize the police department. Mm -hmm. Homelessness had started because Ronald Reagan, when he was governor, closed the mental health institution. And I went down and engaged the homeless people and bought yellow school buses and put them on a marina and put porta potties in them so they'd have a place to sleep. And put portable showers outside and gave each one of them a mailbox so they could apply for SSI and other things to get things. So I was doing a lot of organizing that ordinarily hadn't been done. But I had some good people. I worked with the University of California, Berkeley, with a guy named Troy Duster, who happens to be the grandson of Ida B. Wells. And together, we created some public policy that was great. And after two terms, eight years, I decided politics wasn't what I wanted to be, and I was invited to Boston by the University of Massachusetts at Boston to be the first senior fellow at the William Monroe Trotter Institute. 
And I taught a course on alternative economics and worked with black and Latino elected officials to help with public policy. Then I got attracted to a project called the Dudley Street Neighborhood Initiative. And I later became director of that. And it's the only nonprofit in the history of the United States that got the powers of eminent domain to rebuild a neighborhood. So you're rebuilding neighborhoods. You you have done a lot of amazing things, sir. I want to go back to something you said, though. So from from 1979 to 1986, you were the mayor of Berkeley. And, yes, sir. Um, you know, how, as a black man, did you navigate such a socioeconomically diverse city? Well, I had been there for a while working. I hired a good staff, and I worked very closely with the University of California at Berkeley, with the Institute for Study of Social Change, and the Chancellor of the University and I used to have breakfast meetings twice a month. Mm-hmm. And then Troy Duster, who was Ida B. Wells' grandson, not only did he work with me through his institute, but he hosted a gathering of academics and community organizers at his house twice a month, wine and cheese and stuff, to talk about all kinds of things. So I was exposed to learning. And one thing I early on for my grandmother, no one of us knows at all. Right. And, you know, I was fortunate enough to recognize, I, I, I'm 85 now, I learn something new every day. That's a good and thing. And it's, uh, it's those kind of analysis. Plus, you know, my my minister, Reverend Charles Body, later became head of uh, the North American Baptist Institute at Nashville, Tennessee. He took me and another boy from my group when we were as young as 13, put us in a debate group. And we went all over the state of New York debating other youngsters from Baptist churches and whatever else. So I had exposure to a lot of things. You know, I I was learning stuff and didn't even realize what I was learning. But uh, that's the way it is. Yeah, and I, I agree with, like, the whole exposure piece, you know, because, like you said earlier, you know, we're in a world now where the literal – the literal or the, right. the drug version of dope is taken over and we're incoherent. Right. Um, but when you're exposed to really good things like that, you become developed, you become smart, you become confident. And it sounds like that's what you were, sir, which is very, 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 very dope, sir. <laughs> now you were also a consultant for the Louisiana disaster recovery foundation. Yes, sir. Did that have anything to do with Katrina? It was. I lived in New Orleans for three years after Katrina. Wow. I was a consultant with that foundation as well as uh, I was on staff with the Vanguard Foundation that was based in San Francisco, but they sent me there to work with a guy named Dave Dennis, who was a co-chair of CORE in the Civil Rights Movement. And together we did a lot of organizing. And I was one of five people that they put on the planning team to oversee the planning to rebuild New Orleans. Wow, good job. So, uh, you know, just, I guess, lucky enough to be in the right place or the wrong place at the right or wrong time. <laughs> right or wrong time. But guess what, though? You had the skill set when the opportunity came, right? Yes, so, sir. You know, you know, they say opportunity meets that preparation, and then that's when you get success. Yeah. You know, so. But as I said earlier, all this comes to my grandmother. My grandmother started taking me to see Paul Robeson and Mary Anderson when I was five years old. Mm-hmm. Being exposed to people that ill 
and listening to them talk and perform and whatever else prepared me for the life that I've come to live. And which is a very, very dope life, sir. Um, yes, sir. So, I mean, I am very just, I mean, floored and impressed by, you know, all the things that you've done, especially the stuff that you've done for communities and black people. Um, I, I've been fortunate enough to hang out with you and see you in pictures with like Harry Belafonte, you know, other social activists. What kind of work have you done with uh, Harry? I know you said you did some stuff with Danny. What's some stuff? What are some things you did with with Harry Belafonte? Well, let me tell you, I first met Harry when I was running for mayor the first time. He was visiting Berkeley, and he came to a fundraiser for me right at the beginning of the campaign. Mm-hmm. Uh our congressman and other people had told him about me and Harry came and he listened and participated. And after that meeting, he and I talked for a long time. He and and he and Danny Glover were very close and Harry on the spot said, I'm endorsing you for mayor. And then he, he invited me to various things that he did. Like there was a time when young kids, young black kids, in Florida were being arrested as young as five for supposedly acting out in school. And the police would take them and arrest them and put them in jail without even talking to their parents or whatever. And and Belafonte saw that and he called all the people who were members of the civil rights movement to a meeting in Atlanta, Georgia in uh, 19... No, it was 2005. It was two days before Katrina hit New Orleans. And we were there with everybody from Danny Glover, from Harry Belafonte, from Ozzie Davis and Ruby D, Farrakhan, you name it. They were all there, Cornell West. And we talked about that. And, and then Harry put together an organization that engaged a whole lot of young people black, white, Latino, Native American, whatever else, to begin to look at how he is. And he brought, brought me in to help organize that. So that's why I spent some real time with Harry for about three years between New Orleans and developing that organization. And we spent a lot of time at, at uh, Haley Farm, where the Children's Defense Fund is. Haley was the guy that wrote the autobiography of Malcolm X. Mm. And Marion Wright Edelman bought that farm. And to this day, I still go back there for meetings. Now that's dope. Mm-hmm. Sounds good. That sounds really, really good, sir. Now, Gus, you've done a lot of really, really good things. You know, you're a social activist. You pull people out of jail. You've done some lot of good things with uh, Malcolm X, Harry Belafonte, Cornell West. I mean, people that are very, very prominent in the black community. And that's very, 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 very dope, sir. And we appreciate you for doing that. But now it's time to figure out if you know what's going on in these streets. Street, street, street. All right, Gus, we have reached a point in our show we call What's the Dopest? This is a question that we ask you, and if you get the question wrong, we put you out the house. Even though at this time you are in Berkeley, California, and I cannot put you out the house, we metaphorically put you out the house, sir. So, you played football at the college level, sir. So, 
and you're in the Bay Area. So we're going to ask you this question. Who is the dopest, Joe Montana or Steve Young? Mm. Wow. I got to say Joe Montana. <laughs> by the dopest, I mean the best. <laughs> <laughs> by, yeah, by the dopest, the best, yeah. So so you enjoy Joe over uh, Steve? Yeah, because Joe, Joe, Joe could bring you back at the end of the game. Mm-hmm. He could throw the longest ball I ever saw. He could run. Now, Steve Young was good. Steve Young was good. Steve Young was very Steve, exciting. Steve Young was, was was sitting behind Joe. For a while. And he he didn't get to play until Joe sort of retired, went on to another one to Kansas City, I think it was. Yeah, they put him in Kansas City for a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> so... Going with Joe Montana because of the long ball, and he could bring you back at the well, end of the I, game. Well, I was sitting, I was sitting in the end zone. Oh, okay. When Joe Montana threw a pass, so I forget the end's name, but it was a long ball mm-hmm. near the end of the game, and he went way up and caught that. Uh, they might have been playing Dallas mm. in that game. It was a playoff before, but but it was the best pass I ever seen. Mm. Yeah, the 49ers in Dallas used to have some battles back in the day. Yeah. Yeah. Joe Montana was amazing to watch. And, you know, like when he went to Kansas City, yep, Steve Young stepped right in and did some good things too. Right. Yeah. Right. So you're going with Joe because of the long ball and he can bring you back at the end of a game. Wonderful. Yeah. Now, Steve, Steve was good. Steve was, I believe Steve was left handed. Yeah, Steve was left handed. And, 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 and he could run, but Joe could do everything. Joe could do everything. So, yeah. um, that's good. Now, tell us what's next for you, uh, Gus. You say you're 85 years old, but you're still on the front line. So, what's next? What's some What's some projects you're working on now? Well, I belong. I'm a member of the National Council of Elders. It was founded by Vincent Harding, Martin Luther King's speechwriter. Okay. And we're being called on by a lot of young people, Black Lives Matters and other organizers, to talk about things that we did during the movement, as well as to answer questions for them. What kinds of mistakes might they be making now? Because there's always going to be differences of opinion within those organizations. Mm-hmm. So we're doing a lot of Zoom calls with young people like that, trying to show and sharing with them the mistakes we made because we all make mistakes, right? And so that's gotten quite the attention, and that's what we're doing. And and one of the things we tell them because it's great that these people have been marching day after day, month after month, but we told them in the civil rights movement, we used to march only after we'd accomplished a strategy, and that was to tell people, not just constantly. But we also um, trained people on nonviolence and that, so there was no tearing up businesses and all that kind of thing, because that's that that's 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 vindictive, it's negative. And uh you you can't rebuild the community if but of course we didn't have all these right wing nuts coming in in those days too but you gotta have a way to smell them out and get rid of them in some ways you gotta work with the police to keep them 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 dope them dopes out of your 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 marches and things right so So all that is necessary you got to look at that I think what you're doing is very very important because I think that in any level or any concept or any piece of knowledge a big part of it is passing it down. 
And so, right. you know, the fact that you've done so many things for so many people and now you're passing that down to the younger generation is absolutely amazing. Um, yes, and I appreciate you for that. Um, and that's dope, sir. I mean, that is, that's how it's supposed to be done because if you can't pass it down, what's the point of having it, right? right. <laughs> it just dies. With right. it. it just dies with you. Uh-huh. Yes, sir. So, Gus, tell the people where they can find you. Are you, are you on social media at all? Or, you know, where can they contact you? Twitter? I, you know, I don't know. I mean, I mean, I do Facebook and that stuff, but I just did it because the young people connected <laughs> okay. me to it when I was in New Orleans. But it ain't nothing that I I respond to whatever I can. I send the email by those things. You know, my, I, I give, I give my, my email is, Simple like me, one word, Gus Newport, G-U-S-N-E-W-P-O-R-T, at gmail.com. All right. And my, my cell phone, I take calls from all over, it's 415. Nope, nope, nope. Not giving out Mr. Gus's number. He said the whole thing. Can't do it. No, I can't give you that social media stuff because I don't know. <laughs> I respond. <laughs> I'm an old country boy, you know. I, Shit, I'm, I'm 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 four years removed from that stuff. But, but, uh, four years. <laughs> yeah, I mean Rochester's not the country, though, sir. <laughs> I'm from Atlanta, so it, I know it's not the country. <laughs> right, right. That, <laughs> so Gus, has, well, keep going. It's been real good talking with you, brother. Yes, sir. Yes. So yeah. Gus, you have um just done you know so many things. Like I said, you, you're pulling people out of jail. You're hanging out with Malcolm X, and you're just, uh, you keep pushing, and now you're passing things down to the current leaders like Black Lives Matter. And, you know, we just we just look up to you, sir. We're just glad that you've been a part of the world and a part of our lives. And we definitely thank you for coming to Everyday Dope. We appreciate you, sir. And we're going to holler at you on the other side. Thank you for tuning in to Everyday Dope. We hope you were inspired to live in your dopeness and celebrate the dopeness around you. Don't forget to rate, review, and share with your crew. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at My Everyday Dope. I'm your host, Mr. Sheffield, and we will see you on the other side.